Hey everybody, Pastor Dan here. We had to cancel in-person worship this past Sunday due to a whiteout in Brockport, uh, which is always a bummer when we don't get to have church together, Uh, but I hope you all stayed safe and warm at home this weekend. But you know how it is, Uh, can't let a little snow get a good preacher down, so I thought I would record the teaching uh, that we all would have experienced together uh, at church and send it out on our podcast feed so that you can listen to it from home. It's a sermon entitled the good old days. And there's a there's a question mark at the end, so you, you have to say it like a question. It's, it's not the good old days, it's the good old days. And our scripture reading for the week would have been Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, which I will read for you now. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons, And he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered amongst us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with a reward for his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Hakaldama, which is the field of blood. Peter continued, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his house become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of overseer. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two... Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I don't know uh, if it's just the snow we had today or what, but I've been on a bit of a Christmas kick lately. I know I'm a little late to the party on this. Uh, The Christmas season is officially over. When we're all back uh, at church in person next week, we're going to see that all the greens have been taken down from the sanctuary. But I still want to talk about Christmas, and I want to talk specifically about a Christmas movie. And it's probably one of the greatest classic Christmas films ever made. Not talking about It's a Wonderful Life or uh, White Christmas, not Miracle on 34th Street or even Die Hard. No, no, no. The movie I'm referring to is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation is one of my all-time favorites. It tells the story of the Griswold family. Clark Griswold, played by Chevy Chase, 
is the quintessential suburban dad who is hosting Christmas for the entire family. Got the grandparents there, in-laws, cousin Eddie. And Clark's goal throughout the movie is to give his family a fun, good old-fashioned family Christmas, just like he remembers from when he was a kid. Of course, this is National Lampoon, so everything that can go wrong goes wrong. The kids aren't into it. The tree doesn't fit in the house. The Christmas lights don't work. Unexpected guests show up. The cat gets electrocuted. There's a squirrel in the tree. Total pandemonium. The central conflict in the movie really stems from this romanticized view of the past Clark Griswold is holding on to. His vision of a perfect Christmas. And about midway through the film, the cracks in that vision start to show. There's a scene where Clark is trapped in the attic, uh, and he finds a projector with old home movies, and he watches one labeled Christmas 1955. As he watches that film, you start to see that the holidays weren't really as perfect as he remembers. His mom scolds him for getting too close to the tree. His uncle slaps his hand away when he reaches for a present. Clark's memories of the past aren't entirely accurate. And when everything falls apart at the end of the film, uh, and, and like everything that can go wrong goes wrong, there is this fantastic scene where Clark is talking to his dad. And he says, how'd you do it, dad? Our holidays were always such a mess. How did you get through it? And his dad says, I had a lot of help from Jack Daniels. As someone who has employed similar help to survive family gatherings around the holidays, I appreciate that line. But it's a good reminder that the good old days aren't always quite as good as we remembered them. I want to talk about nostalgia today. I want to talk about our tendency to romanticize the past. And I want to do it in the context of the book of Acts, which, as we all know, tells the origin story of the church. Last week, we talked about the importance of origin stories, how remembering our past can give us direction for the, for the future and for the present. But there's a dark side to origin stories, too, that we have to talk about, and that happens When we fail to see the past for what it really was, blemishes and all. The book of Acts begins on a high note. Jesus has been resurrected. He appears to the disciples. He spends 40 days with them, and man, do I wish we had those conversations written down somewhere. We see the ascension of Jesus, this beautiful moment where he floats into the skies to reside at God's right hand. Fantastic way to start a story. But it's not very long into the book of Acts before the cracks start to show. Acts gives us an honest look at the origins of the church. It's a sobering look, really. In many ways, what those first Christians were doing was revolutionary. They're part of a new movement centered on Jesus, and there's evidence from the get-go that this religion might be different. When the believers gather together in the upper room, we get a list of some of the power players who were there. I'm going to reread that part. Uh, Acts 1, beginning in verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Different Judas from the one who sold Jesus out. 
All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. So the disciples are in the room, the 11 of the 12 who are left, along with some female followers of Jesus, his mom and his brothers. The text goes on to tell us that there were 120 people there, 120 brothers and sisters. That detail is super important. 120 people. That number would have sounded an alarm for the original audience. Back then, if you wanted to start a synagogue, if if you wanted to start a new uh, Jewish community or movement, you needed 120 men. Not people, men and women. You needed 120 men, specifically dudes. The book of Acts tells us explicitly that there are 120 persons there, men and women, in this little Jesus community. And that is enough to start a movement that's going to change the world. This little detail that we usually skip right over when we read it was revolutionary for its time. In a patriarchal society where women were treated like property, the elevation of women that we're seeing among the first Christians, it's nothing short of revolutionary. In the next chapter of Acts, we're going to read about how these first followers of Jesus cared for each other, how they pooled their resources and shared everything in common. Beautiful vision of the early church. But they're also kind of a mess. Peter talks about Judas's betrayal, how one of their own sold them out and then tragically died before any reconciliation could happen. All these folks have just been through a terrible trauma, the the trauma of seeing their friend, seeing Jesus brutally arrested and executed in public. Then a few days later, he's back. They've got to be questioning their own sanity at this point. I, I know I would have been. Friends and family members are probably gaslighting them. Are you sure you saw Jesus come back from the dead and then float up into the sky? (laughs) That sort of thing doesn't happen, you know. Let's not forget also that, that Peter, the one who's spinning this narrative, the guy who's out there doing damage control about Judas, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. All these guys, the 11 disciples who are left, they all abandoned Jesus in his time of need. His family thought he was nuts. The female disciples were the only ones who stayed with Jesus till the end, which is probably why they're still in the room. You know, it's kind of hard to ask them to leave. Oh, you don't want me here because I'm a woman, Peter? Where were you at the cross, right? And as great as it is to see some level of inclusion here, men and women both in the room, let's not forget that this is still a completely ethnocentric community. Everyone in the room is ethnically Jewish. There are no cultural outsiders allowed yet. Which kind of reminds you of most churches today, if we're honest. The Bible isn't sugarcoating what a complete mess the early Christian community was. These people are a wreck. The church is a mess. It always has been, and it always will be, as long as there's people involved. This is true of every organization, by the way. Every every community, every religious group. I don't mean to specifically beat up on the church, but as long as there are people involved in it, it's going to be messy. 
This is even true for our church. I love our church. You all are wonderful, but you're a bit of a mess. I'm a bit of a mess. We are a messy bunch. Our congregation really tries to elevate the the values of welcome and inclusion, radical hospitality. These These are core principles of our church, but we don't always get it right. People have been hurt here. I I know because I've heard from them. Our church has experienced relational conflict and tension. Sometimes new people come here and find that they don't fit. They have a hard time connecting. We make mistakes. Feelings get hurt. Sometimes I mess up. I've said things and done things that hurt and offend people. If you're looking for a perfect church with perfect leaders, this ain't it. We're just as broken as all the others. But we try to do better here. It's core to our mission. It's core to who we are to do better. We don't always succeed, but we try. And when things do go wrong, when when feelings are hurt, starts to feel like we've lost our way, that's when we get nostalgic, right? That's when we start to long for the past, the way things used to be. If we could just get back to how it was, then everything would be okay. Same thing happens in families. You know, families hurt each other. Families are made of humans. Often there's generational trauma. In a family, there can be an accepted narrative about the past, who we are, and what our good old days were. And of course, if you're someone who insists on telling the truth about the past, if you refuse to just let certain details stay buried, well, then it's easy to be seen as a traitor to the family or an enemy. You're going against the family, right? This is also something we do as a country. There are certain events from our past, certain details from our history that we don't like to talk about here in the U.S. This is why I'm so grateful that Acts gives us an honest depiction of the early church, warts and all. Jesus just told these guys to go out into the world and tell others about him. And they're holed up in a room somewhere, casting lots to replace Judas. I can't think of a bigger waste of time. As Christians, we need to be formed by the Bible and its insistence on telling the truth about the past, having an appropriate, honest understanding of the past. This also means that as Christians, we should be the last people to romanticize the past, to pine away for the good old days. That's not what we're about. And I can think of at least three reasons we shouldn't do that. Three reasons Christians should not romanticize the past. For one, it makes an idol of the past. When we elevate the past as a goal and long for things to be the way they've always been, that's a form of worship. That's idolatry of the past. And as Christians, we're not supposed to have idols. Did you know that there are over 45,000 Christian denominations in the world? 45,000. There's over 70 Baptist denominations just in the U.S. Every single one 
of those movements, those groups, began as an effort to recapture the good old days. Every denomination, every reform movement in church history started out trying to reclaim the magic of the early church. If we can just get back to the way it was in the book of Acts, then we'll be doing it right. Of course, then you actually read Acts and you see that the first Christians were just as messed up as us. And so we end up just further and further dividing the church. Christians are not called to center ourselves on the past. We are called to center ourselves on Jesus. Anything and everything else is an idol. And by the way, Jesus was pretty comfortable around messy people. If we center ourselves on him, we're going to learn to be comfortable around messy people too. That's one reason Christians should be the last people to romanticize the past. A second reason is that romanticizing the past prevents us from having a healthy appreciation for the past. It prevents us from having a healthy relationship with the past. Idolatry is not healthy. That's not a healthy connection. When we hold something up as ideal or perfect and ignore the flaws, that isn't honest and it's not healthy. We're seeing this tendency in discussions uh, around history curriculum in public schools. I've seen school board meetings right here in Brockport devolve into shouting matches. A record number of books have been banned in public schools in recent years. Books dealing with uh, racism, sexuality, even books on the Holocaust. Basically anything that could offend or make people uncomfortable. We have this desire to protect our children from the darkness of the past. And of course, there's certain things that age-appropriate we want to be talking about, obviously. But when we cut out all this stuff and try to silence part of the, parts of the past, that doesn't give our kids a healthy relationship with the past. A healthy connection to the past is honest about the good and the bad, where we've succeeded and where we've failed, so that we can learn to appreciate and actually learn from our history, and hopefully do better. A third reason we shouldn't romanticize the past is that doing so puts way too much pressure on the present. The messiness of today is never going to live up to our romanticized view of the past. It can't. It's impossible. A couple years ago, Aaron and I started to catch ourselves pining for the good old days. Right Back before we had kids, when it was just the two of us, before diapers and runny noses and all the stress and lack of sleep, we didn't know how good we had it back then, right? Maybe you can relate. When we first moved out to California, about a year after we got married, we lived in campus housing at Fuller Seminary. Everyone we met, all of our neighbors, were in the same life circumstances as us. Mid-twenties, no kids, one spouse in school, the other working to pay the bills. It was just like automatic friendship. We had a community of our peers who we hung out with all the time, very few responsibilities, lots of free time to go on dates and have adventures. We missed that. But then it occurred to me one day, 
as we were all hanging out together as a family. I think I was building Legos with Zeke and uh, Aaron was reading a story to Miriam. In that moment, I realized that these might actually be our good old days. Right now is the good old days. Aaron and I are young and healthy. Our kids are healthy and we haven't messed them up too badly yet, right? They don't, they don't hate us yet. Our parents are in good health. We have good jobs that we love. We've got a wonderful church community that supports us. Our marriage is strong. When we are old and gray, Aaron and I will probably be looking back on right now as the good old days. I got to tell you, that realization has changed my mindset fundamentally. What if we started to assume... What if we lived as if these are the good old days, the present, right now? What if this is as good as it gets? What if these are the days that someday we're going to be looking back on, wishing we could return to? I'll tell you, that would take a lot of pressure off the present. We'd be able to relax a little bit and breathe. We could stop trying to live up to the past And we could have gratitude for the now. I feel like an obvious caveat is needed here for anyone who's going through some really hard stuff right now. Like, like of course, if you're suffering, if you're hurting, my prayer for you is that it would get better, that these wouldn't be your glory days. But for everyone else, and even for those of us who are hurting What if we started to approach each day with that sense of gratitude? Understanding that this day, even the hard days, are a gift from a God who is very comfortable in our mess. There's a number of graces we can take from this story in the book of Acts. It reminds us that the church is always a mess. Community is always hard. But that does not stop God from showing up and doing amazing things. We can remember that when we center ourselves on Jesus, we're going to find room and hope for all the messiness of our lives and for all the messy people we encounter day to day. We can learn to have a healthy appreciation for the past that doesn't sugarcoat the bad stuff. A view of the past that can actually help us learn and grow And I think it's also a grace to remember that we don't have to recapture our glory days. We don't have to make today live up to the past. We can be grateful for today. Today is enough. This is enough. Right now is enough. It's like Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us an honest look at the origins of the church in the book of Acts. Thank you for making space at the table for messy people from the very beginning and for always showing up and being with us in the mess. 
Help us to have an accurate view of our past, Lord, of our history. One that doesn't put undue pressure on the present. Help us to be here. Help us to be present. To have gratitude and joy for now, for today. As we seek to follow you. Right here and right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.